This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. Welcome everyone to Friends of Europe's event at Cafe Crossfire on equal access to care for rare diseases. This may be, what a relief that it's not 35 degrees today. So let's just all take a minute to recognize that we aren't sitting sweltering in the heat, which is a pleasure. So just to give the frame of what we're here to discuss and why we're here, I won't repeat too much on rare diseases because there are better members of our panel to do that, other than to say it is perhaps the most compelling reason and justification for work at EU level on health. If you are the parent of a child with a rare disease struggling to navigate your way through a health system to get a diagnosis, only to find that there are few, if any, treatments available, it would be very clear why Europe needs to do more. And the logic of coming together to share information, to share research, and to build on the, the body of knowledge is fairly clear. So, in our time today, um, we are going to focus on a couple of issues. The first thing is, it's almost 20 years since the orphan drug legislation was passed. And we'll be asking, has it delivered? We've now had four EU mandates who've been through this process. So what has it achieved and where do we need to go next? Recognizing we're here at the turning of the tide. It's the game of musical chairs. We don't know yet who's going to be in the president of the commission or the council and others, but we do know there will be a change of leadership and therefore an opportunity to either double down and do more, health is considered to be important, or if we're going to be retreating as other strategic priorities come up. So we will know all that in the coming months and our colleagues will um, discuss that. Secondly, we're going to try and pick up how can we move from action plans to action? How can we implement and make more effective the increasing evidence that we're getting, the research that's generating the information that now needs to be turned into real action that patients and their family can experience? And the third question, the most recent initiative, the European Reference Networks, they're about two years old now. So what have we learned? What have they delivered? What potential do they have for the future? And how do we make sure that potential is realized? So that's what we're going to discuss in our hour together. I have a very distinguished panel, and each of them will make a short five, six-minute opening statement. And then the focus switches to you. It's your opportunity to make comments or ask questions, and our panel will respond to that. And we will finish promptly on time at 2 o'clock. So let me just introduce our panel. We have Jan Lecam, the Chief Executive Officer for Eurodis, which is the patient's network for families and individuals with rare diseases. We have Ruta Fernandez, who is the Group Vice President and Head of Rare Diseases for Europe and Canada at Takeda. We have Till Voigtlander, the Austrian representative to the Board of Member States of the European Reference Networks. And we have Martin Seychelles from the European Commission, the Deputy Director for Health and Food Safety at DG Sante. So we have a, a good representative of different stakeholders here. So let me start with Jan. Almost 20 years after the rare disease legislation was passed, what should we, we be saying about what's been delivered and where to go forward? So from our perspective, the EU regulation on orphan drugs is a great success. It has done the job. 
in terms of attracting investment in that area, with, where we see a lot of designation, we see a lot of innovation coming in, and more diseases being covered progressively. Uh, we also see often medicines approved uh, with over 150, so all that is extremely positive. We also see a second benefit, which is it has stimulated the development of an overall policy on rare disease beyond orphan drugs. Uh, if there is today probably European Funds Network, it has been council recommendation on rare disease. It's, it's because of the, of the orphan legislation. Now, we, when we look at the, at the future, what we see is that there is huge promise from the science, and we see some of the great innovation coming in, particularly from gene and cell therapy, but also other treatments which are either curative or transformative or rare diseases. So that's, that's fantastic. But the but are that uh, the system today, the regulations, the overall system to have access is not adapted to that new science. That's the first thing. The second is that we are not prepared enough to stimulate more research for unmet medical needs, and these unmet medical needs are huge. There is today one treatment for one symptoms or a treatment for the, for the disease only for 5% of the rare diseases. We recently did a survey, we will release the full results in September, but uh, the primary results, it's a survey done on 10,000 patients and families in Europe, 7,000 of them have answered, so that gives you a sense. So the 7,000 families are saying, for 95% of them, that they have no cure, and 25% of them are saying that they have no access at all for a therapy that exists for them, and 40% in Poland, in Ireland, uh, or, um, sorry, I'm checking, or Romania also, up to 40% are saying that they don't have access. So we have an issue of access, we have an issue of inequality in Europe. And the reason for us behind that, and I will stop there, there is two reasons. One is that we need, maybe before saying that also, to have maybe a new set of my mindset is that we say there is around 6,700 rare diseases, 1,000 rare diseases. But out of them, 6,000 concerns less than 5,000 patients in Europe. Out of that, 5,000 rare disease concerns less than 500 patients in Europe. It's clear that the system as it is, with HTN payers, is not working to address the needs of 500 patients, and that we need completely different uh, approaches. And what we see as the two key issues really to that is to recognize the specificity of the small population and the continuum of evidence generation from initial research and development, development of the product, approval, assessment for value, and uh, access to patients, but a continuum of generation after so that we go from the artifact of a very small population in clinical trials, which is an artifact because it's homogeneous, but there is nothing homogeneous in rare disease. It's always highly heterogeneous uh, and highly progressive to go to the real population and collect real evidence. The second thing is that we're providing a market exclusivity in Europe, so we pretend to have a European market which doesn't exist. 
we don't have a European market for medicines, right? We have a very fragmented market. Not only 28 member states, but sometimes counties or regions in some countries, right? Like uh, Spain or Sweden or Austria. And you even have to discuss with hospitals. So we don't have an organized and structured way. When we say that for the very small populations, we do need a structured way to approach the patients. So from development to regulators to HTA to payers. We might go back to that. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jan. And um, speakers, you, please feel free to sit down if you like. You don't have to, to stand. Um, <laughs> I prefer to stand because it allows me to move around, but you are, are free to sit. Um, let me now pass to Ruta from the, to get a sense from the viewpoint from industry. Looking back over the last 20 years, how has the legislation made a difference? Um, and looking forward as to what the EU can do to sort of start to implement and some of the activities and the, the initiatives, and then the ERN, what difference do you think that has made? Thank you, Tamsin. Um, so first, I think, just not to repeat what Ian just said, but it's really recognized that rare disease is still an unmet need. So 7,000 rare disease, only 5% has treatment, so 95% with no optional treatments, mostly genetic affecting uh, children, and it takes five years for a child to be diagnosed with rare diseases. So from, an, from a neuro perspective, we still see discrepancies in terms of the products being reimbursed across the country. So we have more than 50% discrepancies in terms of the number of products and the time to reimbursement goes up to 24 months. But what is very important and to your point to recognize is the success and how you too can embrace rare disease as a priority uh, and the success that is driven. And what we observe in most countries is that most countries have a rare disease national plan. Of course, each country is at different stage, uh, but what is really what drives is that it brings consistency in terms of the area of focus, in terms of diagnosis, in terms of newborn screening, in terms of um, increasing research, improving standard of care established centers of excellence and this is critical and we will touch base i will touch base later on on the european uh, reference um, network and we have you know great evidence how this brought in terms of the increase of the research and i invite you i think you know most of you should have the pugac uh, reports where we really see strong evidence in terms of the increase um, of research if we go directly to the orphan medicine regulation maybe i like two points one in terms of the number of products that was approved and Diane, you touched based on that so over the past 20 years we started in 2000 with only eight products with orphan drug uh, designation to now more than 150 products that covers 90 rare disease so i think this is a huge success and from a research perspective we see over the last, since 2006, so during a period of 10 years, an increase of 88% in terms of research, which puts Europe uh, leading the globe uh, from a growth um, of research perspective. So that's from an incentive. So I think great achievements. And as European citizens, most of us, we should be very proud of that. What's next? Go to your point on the, um, on the access and how do we need to move forward? For sure, we need to bring in new innovative approach, approaches to accelerate uh, 
um, access and using real-world evidence. So it's very clear that we need to prove the value of those treatments and we need to make sure that we enable and we establish early dialogue amongst and build trust amongst key stakeholders, amongst payers, amongst regulators, amongst industry to facilitate uh, that discussion early on. Um, I would like to highlight uh, the great initiative Trust for Rare Disease built uh, 20, uh, two years ago, a multi-stakeholder -stake, um, platform that really, it's working, yeah, it's working, <laughs> um, that really enable for all these stakeholders speaking the same language in real world evidence to make sure that we reduce these uncertainties that we observe um, in the rare disease space. Also important to see that these innovative models are not waiting and we have already great examples in Europe where these already AMNOC, we have France with ATU, and the latest um, great example of success, uh, Scotland, uh, where it really promotes early exits after EMEA approval and really focus on making sure that there is a period of real-world evidence to show the value um, of the treatments that are being delivered to patients. From an ERN perspective, you know, I think great initiative really establishing the centers of excellence and starting to put the, the connectivity amongst those centers. A great example, 24 disease areas currently already certified with certified hospitals. The key next step is how we bring the, we maximize or we leverage European reference networks to set up registries um, at European level uh, to build uh, real-world evidence. So that's from a, an European reference network perspective. So in a nutshell, again, and Jan, you had a great article on um, the success of rare diseases in, in Europe. Great success, still an area of unmet needs, and it's our role to continue to make sure uh, that we provide access to treatment from a patient perspective. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let me now pass to Till, because of course you, you represent the European Reference Networks, the most recent tool in the, uh, the toolbox that the EU has. And obviously you've been working in the area of rare diseases for, for a number of years. What can you tell us, first of all, about the, uh, the spectrum of what we mean by equal access for patients with rare diseases, and then more specifically, how you see recent developments. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's working. Um, I don't want to repeat what my previous speakers have said, but one very important point is, and I wanted to point that out really, we are talking about equal access to care, and we have been focusing currently just on often medicinal products, and I think that is something Jan could have said far better than me, that access to care means far more care is something holistic. So we have care is access to expertise, care is access to diagnostic tools, to, to uh, test systems, care is social uh, support, and care of course then is treatment. And we shouldn't forget about that because otherwise we get perhaps a bit too negative saying, well, we have 95% of the patients are not covered. Not everybody will be helped just by a pill, one has to say. Um, so, and if you look at that, what did we achieve so far, then we have to go a further step. We have to differentiate between what we can do on a European level and what is more or less the responsibility and the autarky of the national healthcare systems. 
So if you look for what I mentioned first, access to expertise, then I would say, yeah, we have a European tool now that is European reference networks. And if these connections will be fostered further, then indeed patients in Europe and beyond Europe have access to highest level of expertise they could get. If you look for diagnostic tests, it's a bit difficult because that is a national issue. Uh, it could be helped on a European-based level, but uh, we have been working on this uh, cross-country genetic testing stuff for several years, and depending whether reimbursement works or not, the testing works or doesn't work, so we have to do something here. Social system, I don't want to go into any detail because that is really something on a national level and there's huge differences between the member states. There's a lot to work on that. There's a big gap. And if you look for treatment, then again I come and I would uh, try to um, differentiate that in the different levels we have. Treatment could be, for instance, surgical interventions, and that is something which will be supported by European reference networks. If you need something which is a really highly specialized technique, only a few persons across Europe are able to do. It could be also um, kind of instrument-based treatment, very specialized instruments like uh, gamma knife, uh, so gamma irradiation therapy, for instance, or proton therapy. This is something which we could use, we could solve sometimes on a national level for those which are very experimental, very expensive. It's far more applicable if we do that on a European level and we don't have a framework for that at the moment. It's my point of view at least, so that is something where we have a gap too. Then we have medical devices, that's a national level, and we have the orphan drugs. And we have heard about the orphan drugs already a bit, and we have heard, well, 5%, uh, it is a success, but if you see that 95%, and I would reduce that number because not everybody will be treated by an often medicinal product. One has to be very clear here, and we have very rare, rare diseases, which are chromosomal deletion syndromes or so, where I have really a problem as a medical doctor to imagine how to treat that with a, with a drug, to be honest. But a lot of people are lacking that, and the question is why? And there are, I think, a couple of points. Some things are that we don't have so far uh, the real research knowledge we need, which is the best point to address and to attack in a, in a disease to get to a kind of at least cure or symptomatic relief. That is something where ERNs, if I come to that point, could come into play again because it should also foster, I mean, it is primarily meant for healthcare, but it should also foster research. Uh, another point is uh, patient cohorts. Uh, previously, it was always told it's very difficult if you have a drug and you have a principle, then you have to look for the patients. Now, with the ERNs and with upcoming registries, I think we should have cohorts in place even before the research is far enough to get there to the treatment. So that is a very important point where reference networks will help. Um, then, of course, there is another um, point, which is it's always a challenge, and I was waiting that you say that, to develop a drug. I mean, you have a lot of drugs in pipeline when you start with your basic research, and only a few will finally end up as being a marketable product. So that one has to keep in mind. But there's also one point, and this is what you already addressed a bit. We have to see that rare diseases are not uh, a very homogeneous group. We have rare diseases which are quite frequent, if I may say so, and we have them which are very rare. And so there is probably a certain threshold where the marketing size for industry is so small that they are not interested. And I know uh, doctors in Austria that told me they think they have developed a strategy for a disease which will probably only be relevant for a couple of patients or so. And they addressed industry and they said, no, this is not a market for us. It can't go like that. 
And this is what you said, we have to think a bit, that is my personal point. We have to think a bit of different ways uh, to address exactly this. Because even if we try to reformulate a little bit the orphan drug regulation, we will have this bottom level marketing size or market size thing. And so we have to think about ways, what could we do to help those patients which are below this threshold and still stimulate research, still stimulate even production in a kind of a non-profit way or whatever. I mean, this is what I would like to discuss with you later and hope you have also good ideas. That would be my statement now. Thank you. Thank you, and you've given us lots to think about, and you've, again, reminded us uh, with a sense of realism, both the, the huge sort of number of issues that are covered by this, this issue of equal access to care, and also that the, the potential limitations of where we could go in research and potential treatments. So I think it was a very useful note of caution. Martin, let me turn to you. Um, Perhaps unfairly, you're the only representative of, of an EU institution on the, t uh, on the panel, and we're, we're looking back over 20 years, uh, and you can't answer for the people who were in place before you, but has the orphan drug legislation delivered everything we hoped it would? And going forward, we've heard where the ERNs could add real value, but do they have the capacity, the financing, and the sustainability to do that? Yes, well, thank you. It's, that's, I think you put your finger on, on the issues exactly. Uh, first of all, uh, the previous speakers have already said this is an area of high added value. Why? Because uh, obviously it's all about numbers at the end, and, and, and I think that's been brought out very clearly already. So our approach to date has been based, first of all, on uh, achieving a higher critical mass through the ERNs, but also through other work, for example, on, on the registries, there's work underway to ensure, for example, the interoperability of rare disease registries to make sure they can all function as one. Um, and on the other hand, to incentivize the, um, through the orphan drugs uh, regulation, and also, uh, let's not forget, all uh, incentives we give to innovation in general, uh, which could also be uh, important. Um, but as the previous speakers also said, incentives um, help to address part of the problem. Uh, they will not replace the reality of the market. They can, make, they can offer an inducement for someone to put uh, money and, and research and effort into developing something, but if the market is not there, then obviously uh, we might have to look at other approaches. And that's exactly, I think, what the road that lies ahead. So as you know, on the orphan, um, on the orphan um, regulation, we've, we're currently conducting a specific review. We've already done uh, a general review on the effect of incentives on pharmaceuticals that has some quite relevant findings, I think. It, it clearly shows that the incentives have delivered in terms of innovation, so there have been positive results which can be linked to the incentives offered. But there are also, uh, let's say, side effects or unwanted effects of this. Uh, the report uh, mentions many of them. Uh, for example, there is uh, sometimes a negative effect on access caused by the fact that the designation leads, of course, sometimes to uh, a specific situation on the market, which can be of quite a long duration. And that sometimes translates into prices that are extremely high and out of reach of most of the health systems, I would say. And this is something we will have to tackle um, together. I must stress together. This is not, uh, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody here, because I think actually the actual result on the ground results from the reality on, on all sides. The industry strategy, the member state health systems policies. But if we do not tackle this, and this is not just a problem for rare diseases, I could say the same about many other conditions. 
But of course, it comes to a fore on, on, in rare diseases because the numbers are so small. Mm. And the, 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 the business model is already severely challenged. Um, so um, the ERNs, as we've been mentioned, I mean, of course, uh, the immediate trigger for the ERNs uh, was to uh, provide simpler, better, improved access for patients to diagnosis and treatment. But this is just the beginning. We all recognize this. Uh, first of all, um, the, the, the um, five-year wait average for diagnosis was already mentioned. I would add another statistic, which is sometimes, I think, even more symptomatic of the problem. It's uh, an average of seven doctors um, for, for the final correct diagnosis, which means that in between there are plenty of misdiagnoses with wrong treatments, and all these costs add up, and of course the impact on the patient is going to be very negative, and very often one runs out of time, unfortunately. So the next challenge will be to fully integrate the ERNs into the healthcare systems of the member states. There has to be a pathway available for every patient within that member state or through the ERNs elsewhere, if, if that is not possible in the country. Um, I am very confident that if we do that, we could sharply immediately reduce at least the diagnosis time, uh, because a lot of this is due to misdiagnosis and, and, and very you know, unclear pathways. And the next step, already mentioned as well, I, I would very much agree, is to transform the ERNs into an environment for research. The ERNs are very well placed to do that, not on, on their own, accompanied with registries, accompanied with also the right investments. But I would come back to my original point, unless we also simultaneously address the access issue, and this has to be done in a spirit of partnership between the industry, the member states, with the support of the European institutions, uh, we will only solve at best part of the problem. And, and innovation without access is missing the point, really. It only adds to frustration. Of course, you cannot have access if you don't have innovation because there's nothing to offer. But um, just focusing on developing new treatments is not enough. We also need to have uh, a, a clear vision. And especially when it comes to combining research needs with this problem, I think there is a lot to be explored, maybe in looking at things like European access programs to collect data. I mean, I want to focus not just on data needed to develop a treatment, but also real-world data that is needed to optimize treatments and maybe discover other aspects of this. And now, this, can, this cannot be done, I think, country by country. Now, if you want to use real-world data, you have to collect the largest possible and best possible cohort of data to optimize the treatment, to understand also how to manage the condition, which approaches give the best results. And again, the ERNs are very well placed to do that. And maybe for some, at least, conditions, we could um, try to see how we can work together to also use data as an incentive. I don't think there's been enough discussion at the European level because the incentives discussion has been largely dominated, of course, by the existing IP incentives, which are very important. But there are possibly other incentives as well. Data could be, and, and, and access, and the quality, and the availability of that data, because you, um, researchers need data like they need oxygen. Without data, we cannot understand what these diseases are about. Um, and I think you know, we should be thinking in those terms. So I think, you know, yes, 20 years um, where I think we've achieved the major political result that rare diseases are no longer a rare topic. They're very much in the mainstream, which is not an insignificant result. But on the other hand, we have to realize we're still at the beginning of, of a journey and we have to accelerate efforts. There will be very good opportunities over the next few years. The next uh, multi-annual financial framework, particularly the Horizon Europe program, but also other programs that can be used.
Um, I just mentioned, for example, it's not just medical needs these people have. They have also social needs, um, rehabilitation, other issues. Uh, what about the carers that, who take care of these uh, patients? Some of the, many of those are family members, etc. There are other financial instruments that could be used to support these kind of issues. Um, and so I think if we, if we focus efforts there um, and, and use what we have until now as, as, as a foundation, we can, I think, achieve progress. But we have to realize this is a multifaceted problem and it requires uh, um, a collaborative approach. Excellent, thank you. Well, we've had some really useful opening statements and there are lots of elements in it that we can pick up and, and take further. But let me now open up for the floor to see immediate comments or questions to this first set of statements. And I have a list of potential questions I can throw in, but it's, the meeting is not just for me, it's for you. So let me get a sense who has something they would like to contribute or a question. We've got a hand up here. Let me see who else would like to say something at the moment. But we'll start by bringing the, the microphone, if we could, here. Thank you. Just introduce yourself to us, please. Yes, hi. My name is Carmen Pond. I'm a healthcare reporter with Politico right here. Um, I had a question for Mr. Two questions, actually, for Mr. Seychelles. When you talk about the integration of ERNs into healthcare systems, what exactly do you mean in practice, and how can that be done? And obviously, um, you know, the IP incentive discussion uh, that has been floating around in Brussels for the past few years, um, do you foresee that the Commission will make some changes to the orphan drug regulation, um, you know, from, from your standpoint right now? Thank you. Okay. That's perhaps also a question that could go to Till, looking at the point of view of the ERNs be being integrated into healthcare systems, because Till, you mentioned that quite rightly, Europe isn't going to fix everything. And there are some elements across the access to care continuum that are quite legitimately at national or local level around screening, etc. So, um, Martin, would you like to pick up on particularly the issue of what you're going to do on IP incentives, and then both of you could answer on the issue yes. of access to integration of the ERNs into healthcare? Yes, look, on the IP incentives, as you know, we've done the main study, which covers all pharmaceuticals. We're now looking at orphans and pediatrics because they are two particularly challenging business cases. Um, we hope to have those results uh, by the end of this year. And of course, depending on those results, it's a bit too early to speculate, but I'm sure there will be uh, interesting findings, okay. uh, which we will have to react to. Uh, and I think this debate in general terms, this, this debate in any case of how to find uh, uh, the correct and, and ensure a correct balance between promoting innovation and ensuring access, which are two sides of the same coin. This is the key line. This is not choosing one or the other. They don't, they, they, it does not make sense to have one without the other. And this is a key political issue. So you can expect that the commission, the next commission, will you know, find ways to tackle this issue. Of course, not alone, but firmly with the member states, with the industry, with the patients' organizations, and with the health professionals. This is really very much on the radar at the moment. Um, on the integration, what I mean by that is very simple. Um, you have, in most countries, national rare disease plans. Most of these predate the ERNs. So, for example, the first issue is they need to be updated to take into account the existence of the ERNs. And the, the key principle, I think we all agree, should be that no patient should be left without a pathway. Now, it is for the member state, of course, to decide the correct pathway. It could be that uh, diagnosis and treatment, if available, could be offered in that country. It could be done using the ERNs. But I think we should all collectively have the goal that no patient should be left without a pathway. 
where, where that pathway is available, at least for diagnosis, it's not just treatment. Even diagnosis helps because un until you give a name to a condition, as I'm sure many would be able to testify who have personal experience of this, even accessing, for example, social assistance is impossible. You know, th yeah. There needs to be a diagnosis before you can proceed on many other aspects. So uh, at the moment, we still have a lot of patients who do not have a pathway to diagnosis and have any available treatment or any uh, such uh, support. So that's the first step, and I think that should be a common goal, mm. uh, member states and with the support of the Commission. Okay. Yeah, I fully agree with that point. Um, really key to the success of reference networks in particular if you look for the healthcare system is integration into that healthcare system now you might ask well why do we have to integrate it now why is there nothing has nothing happened before but you have to imagine that member states sometimes are in the situation where they cannot offer in their own territory uh, the expertise necessary for that. And if you then set up pathways that lead to nowhere because there is not the expertise, because you just focus on a national uh, area first, then that just leads to frustration. So I think now it's really the best time point that those member states, we have some which are qualified anyway. I mean, very honestly speaking, uh, centralism and federalism are two very diverging principles and I guess some have sometimes uh, the the um, advantages are more on the side of a federal system, sometimes on a central one. But for healthcare and rare disease patients, my belief, and I come from a country that is highly federal, centralization is really good because that is something where you focus expertise, where you focus the things, and where you can put in place these pathways. In Austria, it's more difficult. We have these nine different inner states or counties, and they have to agree on. And if we have just one center in Vienna, then even people from Vorarlberg have somehow to benefit from that. So that is something we can build up now because we can offer something. We have now set up the centers, and this is something which also member states now have to do. I mean, we have, if you look in the table about the reference networks, there are only currently seven to eight countries which are represented in more or less all of the reference networks. So we still need access points for these patients, and it's not only full members we need, it is also sufficient if we have so-called affiliated partners also, but they somehow the knowledge which is generated and which is available in the reference network needs to come to the country, and therefore we also need the points. So it's pathways, but it's also to have the contact points. And then it's also to train them to use these things for the expertise, because that is a very important what you mentioned. I mean, diagnosis is something very important. If, if, if somebody has a diagnosis, that is a relief already, because otherwise you go around and you go from doctor to doctor to doctor, and you know something is wrong, and the doctor finally tells you, I can't find something, well, and there are, you know, some cases where you think, could it be psychiatric or something like that, uh, and, but you miss what is really the fact. So that is a very important point here. And uh, to help that, one instrument used by the ERNs is the so-called CPMS. It's a clinical patient management system. It's a kind of a virtual chat room for specialists where you bring in your cases and then they can discuss them and you can discuss different aspects. You can discuss it's a patient with an unknown diagnosis, so where do we have to go to deliver a diagnosis? It's a case where we have to find a treatment option. What is the possibility here? Or something goes wrong with the treatment. And then what do we do there? There you need the expertise as well and for that, of course, you need the connection points, and therefore pathways within the country to address that patient to the real contact points is important, but also that each and every member state now really set up these points that they can be uh, connected and linked to the, to the expert level of the reference network. Okay, uh, thank you. And again, you've highlighted for us some of the practical realities that countries that have these federated systems, the, 
they have to overcome that at a national level. That's essentially their job to do, to make the connections. If they've chosen to organize that way, the fragmentation, because they're the ones who know the, 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 the routes between them need to make that happen. On the other hand, the added value of doing that becomes clear to them when they share across the European reference networks what a centralized system can do in terms of improving knowledge across a whole system. Okay, let me open it up again to the floor. We have a contribution there. Yes, we'll bring you a microphone, and I'll be inviting our other panelists also to comment on that. Thank you. My name is Fiona Loud. I'm from Kidney Care UK, the UK kidney patient support charity. I'd like to ask Mr. Seychelles a little more about your, your comment about using data as an incentive. While we can all agree that collecting data and being able to share data for, for the good of everybody is something that many patients do believe is important, but there is, of course, a certain sensitivity in data being used in some ways because of the potential implications around insurance and, and other such things. So if you could expand on that, please. Okay, but this is a question I think that I would also refer to Jan to, to pick up on because I'm sure the patients' organization have discussed extensively the, the balance between sharing data or not. And it, the surveys show that citizens are a little more reticent if you ask them if they're prepared to share data about themselves with some cloud system somewhere. But when you ask patients about sharing data that might benefit them, their families, or other patients. There is a, a very different viewpoint. And perhaps, members of the panel, you might like to respond on this issue of data, data as an incentive, because some organizations are proposing in their messages to the incoming commission that one useful proposal could be some kind of EU executive agency or institute for European health data that would act as a clearinghouse and potentially a mechanism for incentives to access. So all members of the panel might like to respond on that. But let me start with you, Jan, from a patient's perspective, this issue of data. We've heard that it could be, we can think beyond the issue of uh, intellectual property as incentives, and data is one area, but how do we do it in a way that would meet patients' needs and make sure it doesn't discriminate against them? Honestly, I think that's the easiest part, uh, to look at the patient perspective on that. And we've done about three years of work now with qualitative analysis, interview, focus group, we've done quantitative survey, we've articulated now all the elements I think on that, and it's pretty clear. The, the patients are absolutely ready to share for research purpose and for clinical development purpose. The more the severe the disease and the less option they have, the more keen and somehow they don't care about their data, the more therapeutic options and treatment options they have, the more they are care and want to consent uh, and what they really care about is that there is no misuse of this data in other environments such as insurance uh, or access to loans basically if I, if I put it in a very uh, short nutshell so all the systems of consenting reconsenting are highly supported by patients we also reflecting on the concept of donation of data which is one of the hot topics so but somehow I would say that the easiest part when, in terms of advocacy, we're not advocating on that, saying there is a major issue here. Where we see the major issue is that there is a need for a strategy on data. So when we speak about data as incentives and data as currencies for some member states, we are talking that way, or hospital talking about their currency, about the data. Yes, we can understand that, and, and I support the comment of, of uh, Martin Segel, but the, the, the thing is that what we need 
what we are calling for is for a strategy by the European Commission on data within the European Funds networks for rare diseases. And today we only have a strategy, honestly, on the CPMS, on the cross-border. Here we have a strategy. We have elements of a strategy with interoperability, with some of the work done at the Joint Research Center. But honestly, I think we have all the elements to articulate a strategy. We need to know what we want to do. And what we're saying is that the goal is to improve the health status of the 25 million people with rare diseases. And we're creating all together these networks, which are bringing together the most frequent rare disease, but also the more rare into these European funds networks. And we need these national pathways in embedment into national healthcare. But at the end, we need to collect the minimum common data set on all patients wherever their entry point in the system. And we need to be able to find them out on genotypic or phenotypic information for research purpose or drug development purpose or whatever. So there is elements which are there, which I think we need to address very urgently, because the more we go, the more there is developed strategies by hospital, by regions, by countries, the more rigid it will become. Okay, thank you. Martin, let me pass over to you, because um, the question was, uh, thrown into your corner and of course at EU level we've got the recent directive on public services data which opens up some of these questions. Um, so we, we're sort of caught between these two legislative frameworks. With the, we've got the GDPR which many would argue even though it sets clarity on ownership has acted as a break on some sharing of data uh, uh, between the researchers and across borders and we have the need to do it but to make sure it's not used in other areas like uh, discrimination on access to loans and also things like the ability to, to foster or adopt children is affected by these kinds of um, discrimination. Martin, where do you see the next five years us being able to make a breakthrough on this issue of letting the data flow where it has most use but not misuse? Yes, I think that's actually key. Um, I think, um, uh, and recent surveys have shown this very clearly, the general public, when it comes to health data, is certainly not concerned about the, the correct use of data. I mean, a large majority, overwhelming majority of the general public, and I'm not just speaking here about rare disease patients and their families, are very much in favor of using health data for research purposes. What they're worried about is possible abuse. Examples that you've mentioned. And I think that's something that can be tackled. First of all, uh, um, we have a need, I think, for a strong, clear, effective regulatory framework on that um, to how we can um, avoid misuse of this data. Um, we should not forget also that because things like discrimination have been mentioned, um, our uh, entire legal system is very well rooted in the Convention on Human mm -hmm. Rights uh, and I think uh, aspects of discrimination can be tackled very strongly there. But uh, a governance framework we believe would help. Um, a lot of, of issues also stem from the fact that sometimes, I mean, you mentioned the GDPR, that there are sometimes very different national interpretations, I would say even national cultures on this. It's the same legislation, but sometimes interpreted with different nuances. And I think one of the interesting ideas which has come out recently is also to foster a networking among GDPR um, authorities, data protection authorities in the member states. Um, to also have developed a kind of consensus on how to interpret 
certain issues in a more consistent way. I'm not here arguing, of course, for a very uniform, necessarily a uniform single interpretation, but at least it should be consistent and coherent. And I think that can be achieved through um, a dialogue and ensuring that the data protection authorities have the opportunity to dialogue. But let's, let's, have, let's have no illusions. The next few years will be crucial when it comes to the use of data. I mean, the, 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 the data revolution is already upon us. We're very much already in the, in the middle of it. Uh, other sectors uh, are far, already far more digitalized than, than health. Um, we estimate that health is, in some respects, a decade behind other sectors, which is a paradox. Health generates, on the other hand, very high-quality data, large volumes of it, generated by highly trained professionals in very well-regulated settings. So it, it should be extremely good data, and we only use a very small fraction of it to improve health and public health and for research, etc. So this is something we need to tackle, Europe needs to tackle, because if we don't do it, others will for maybe different priorities. And uh, you know, Europe has to actually make sure it is also by showing how it can be done in full respect of human rights and, 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 and solid legal principles, we can also show how it can be done globally. And, and this is something which is emerging quite strongly, that uh, even the, the GDPR, which I know is often criticized, but globally is also seen to be a good point, a strong reference point, because it, it is one of the, let's say, most comprehensive approaches, and other parts of the world are very interested in, in, in that approach, how you find the balance between protect, protection of privacy and, 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 and other rights, at the same time, making sure that the data is available for research. And you cannot have research without data. Okay. That's simple. I can see, Jan, you wanted to come back on that. But before I do, let me, let me turn to you, Ruta, and say, we, we've, we've had this conversation about data as a potential incentive and access to it, and this idea that you know, maybe we need to have a clearinghouse or a mechanism for this to happen. From, the, from your perspective, if there was to be some kind of clearinghouse, an agency or something that allowed access uh, to data, data sets for use, would this act as an incentive? Would, is this something that you could see that might change the business case for investing in some of these areas that are very, very rare indeed? There are very small numbers of patients. So the effort required to try and go and get those patients, to federate them and get the data, means that it would be not worth investing in. Would access to data, if it comes through a clearinghouse, it's properly cleaned up and good quality, would this tip the balance for a company? I think this will be for sure a key contribution and a, uh, a great contribution because in rare disease and with touch base, you know, we say 95% and you mentioned let's also set expectations that it's very difficult to aim for the 100% because they are very niche. So the only way to pursue is really to build scale and you build scale at European level with better data, more data and we also address the challenge on innovation and access and the two pieces you know need to come across together so from an industry perspective it's um, in our interest also to show the value of the treatments that are brought to the patients and with that we need to collect that real world evidence with speaking the same language amongst payers regulator industries to facilitate that access so i think that should be the, you know, the way to go in setting up how it will be in concrete, which governance model, how it will work. I think it's something that is still being discussed, but it will be very welcome. Thank you. Jan. I think for rare disease and often drugs, 
GDPR is not the problem, creating a European clearinghouse, we don't want to wait another five years that this exists before. Everything is there. We know what to do. We know the stakeholder what to do. We had plenty of meetings, plenty of reports, we know what to do. The thing is, get it done. So, for instance, on registries, we still have calls for proposal from member states or commission to fund registries without a strategy behind, sorry to say. For me today, we should not put any money in a registry if it's not a European registry with some strict criteria. The, uh, there will not be a registry for 6,000 rare diseases. Maybe for 400, 500, it's meaningful. For the others, we need another way to do it. And for these 400 and 500, I, again, I don't think that the consent of the patient or their sense of protection or sharing or the GDPR is the issue. The issue is to have a strategy, get the member states to adhere to that, is to have the Joint Research Center to do their job properly and to be scaled up with resources to do it in order to provide the proper guidance and advice and training and platform to, to, to support that and to make sure that in the hospital there is the proper capacities also, the human capacities to collect this data. Because it's also at the end the time of doctors and nurses in a hospital center. So it needs to be supported by the hospital and the national healthcare system that it's part of the job to collect this data on a regular basis and to, and, and, and to share them. But that's really where I would insist. And last maybe, is as we're talking about industry, is that here I think there is a pretty good consensus in rare disease that all the data collection and registries, natural history study and etc. don't need to be and should not be uh, industry specific and not product specific but rare disease registries and multi-stakeholder with the different companies participating. Honestly I don't know any company today which is against that but what I see is that it takes a long time and it's not a fantastic process so far to establish the partnership between industry and ERNs around how do we work together on specific elements like doing that kind of, of, of studies and this is where we would like the agenda to go a bit faster and to be more specific. Thank you. Um, I have one more. We have time for one more input, and I see I have a hand up, and a microphone's coming to you. Um, and I, I note your frustration, Jan, that we, we have the elements, we just need to get it done. Yes. Well, uh, I would like to echo uh, the importance of real world evidence. Uh, Alexander Nats is my name, representing UCOPE, uh, uh, more than 130 um, innovative companies in the field of orphan drugs. And I would like to echo what has been said uh, about the importance of real world evidence. We have been initiating together with a couple of companies, together with Eurodis and also a couple of HDAs, this initiative, Trust for Wear Disease, I think two, two years ago which I think was very important, but indeed, um, to reflect on, on, on Jan's comments and, and, and Euroda's uh, uh, approach, we need to put things in action. Um, and I think that's very important, and Europe can play a big role here. We are talking about harmonization of HTA, but we're not talking really about coordination of registries, and I think that's the way forward. We don't have to harmonize everything, but we need to bring uh, people on the table which are, act which are actually bringing forward uh, registries. We see a proposal on the table in Germany these days where, um, and that will be enacted uh, on Monday next week, where GBA will have the discretion to set up a registry um, for rare disease products. Physicians not participating in that registry should not be allowed, that's what the law says, to, to prescribe that product. 
we see there is a big risk in two ways that we have a, sh a shortfall of access in Germany for rare diseases due to that very strict sanction. But even more so, we see the need for coordination. If some member states, important member states in orphan drug policy like Germany, are the front runners to set up a registry and we have to fight as industry all the time to make sure that we are, we are, we are meeting those, we are setting up those registries. Well, the payers are actually, HTA, uh, the HTAs are actually setting those registries. That we make sure that they are aligned with the regulatory agent, uh, uh, registries which are put forward by EMA. I think it's it's not just on industry; it's on all of us to make sure that we're that we're having one registry for Europe, and that political discussion is very important. And I just wanted to highlight the German example. There are some people being the front runners and actually creating facts, uh, and we need to make sure that this is not only for Germany. And there is a big risk involved with this. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Is there a Anyone else who also wants to come in at this point? Because I have a little bit of flexibility on the time. If not, I'll pass to the panel to pick up on this issue. Um, so, we've, we've, Jan, you've told us we just need to get this thing done. We've been talking about this endlessly for a while. We know the pieces. It actually just needs to move into action. We've had an example from the floor that even a country that's considered quite an advance in terms of uh, what it's done on rare disease is finally getting some coordination between what the regulators want in terms of a registry and data and what the payers and insurers may want. And that's an example, again, of a federated system now trying to create uh, connections. How do we make this done? How do we ensure that countries that are delivering and are at the front end pull the others with them so that we start to get su at least you know, a m minimum increase across all of Europe in how we're dealing with this? Because we have the toolkit. The registries are there. We've got the legislation. Um, the patients are bringing themselves. The cohorts are there. The knowledge generation is there. What do we need to do to make it happen? And all panel members can pick up on this. Yes. Okay, maybe if I may start on that. The... Um I think we're pretty advanced because of the work of the last 20 years and even in the last five years, we advanced. Now, what do we need? We need the credibility of ERNs, as Thiel said, by completing in the member states to make sure that we cover the 24 therapeutic areas, uh, that this is organized. We need to be credible by, select, by bringing in more excellent centers and putting out the ones which are not at the level. Uh, so really to try really to aim to excellence. Second, to have credibility by putting money now into the network. I think you heard your orders, and me in particular on behalf of your orders, saying in the past, even against the opinion of many people, that money was not the essential thing in European Defense Network at the beginning. And sorry to say, I think we've been right to say that, because there was no, not a big pot of money we've been able to bring together by therapeutic group and get that structure in place. And it gives the time to have the proper discussion in the member states to do their part of the job in putting resources there with national plans or without national plans. Now, what we need is European money. Because all that takes resources for coordination of a network. If you speak about registries coordinated at European network, at the end, you need an Indian to do it. So it, it needs some, some sort of resources at that level, and also a commitment, as I said, at national level, ministry and hospital to do it. The next thing I mentioned, I just repeat, we need that strategy on data for rare diseases based on the ERNs, and not only 
for medicine purpose, but really, as Teal said, for the overall care purpose, right? That's the first thing. And even, even for planning of health and social services. So we need that urgently in place. More member states are developing their registries or their databases, as they call it usually, on rare diseases. There is now the disease registries. So there is a mix of things. We need to put some order into that to make sure that we allocate the money in the best way. And here, the partnership with industry is essential. And we should not be afraid of that. It works in the field of cancer with the European Organization for uh, URTC and, and others. So we should not be afraid of that if the rules are, are, are clear and if they are collaborative. The, the next thing we, we, we may need is a new policy on rare disease. We think that few years from now, uh, the, the, the Court of Auditors in agreement, I understand, with the European Commission in their last report on cross-border healthcare has agreed, has mentioned that a new policy needs to be in place by 2023. It's a good horizon to do that. We need to work on diagnostic. How do we provide diagnostic within six months after contact with a doctor? That's a realistic objective today. How we think to provide standard of care to a broader percentage of the population with rare disease? How do we put a strategy based on qualitative objective, on patient's outcome, on excellence? Today it's possible in rare disease. It wasn't 10 years ago, but because of what has been done with the good and bad, it becomes a possible objective. And I, I finish with the orphan drug regulation. I think we're going to make strong choices. What I see today, honestly, we are second zone. There is the positive, but we're second zone. And either we are really serious to say that Europe is on innovation, on competitiveness, on attractiveness, and then we think incentives and regulatory framework to continue and to go further in that direction, or we continue to preempt that discussion because of the budget impact and the prices. Which for me is another story that Commission and future legislation should tackle is that we've based all this regulation in Europe based on US regulation. So it does the work on incentivizing research, but the environment of access is different in healthcare, right? It's private in US, it's public here. Healthcare is public, reimbursement of medicine is public. We need to regulate that part in Europe. That's really what we think. If we leave it to the market as it is, it's failing for patients because as Martin said at the end, a product which doesn't reach the patient is not an innovation for the patient. So we really need to, to address that. So we can be flexible on the type of incentive, we can be creative on what could be either adjustment in the current legislation or thinking fully of a new legislation. As far as your audience is concerned, we're fully ready for the two options. Yeah. So we know what we want and we have proposals on the table. But we need first to make sure that Europe to make a decision. Do we want to let America innovate and we just follow up and we negotiate prices? Or do we want to be a zone of innovation and then to really put ourselves in place for that and make Europe the most attractive place to innovate in rare disease, including more attractive than US potentially, with a better access to patients and better economic predictability for the economic actors we're investing. Yeah, and before you pass the microphone, uh, you, you know, you've given us the global perspective uh, and, and you've benchmarked us against the United States, but the big player arriving on the scene is, of course, China, mm -hmm. which is a huge population, a huge market, and a major political commitment to the life sciences and to creating an enormous database of genetics. Um, 
if, if you're asking Europe if it's really serious about this and vis-a-vis the United States, should we should also be asking ourselves, you know, where we stand when we see the kinds of political commitment and steps that China's making? Am I increasingly involved into these international activities. We've created Redis International, we're bringing Redis to WHO, we're trying to get IFPMA to work seriously on rare disease. It's not really working. We're working a lot with the colleagues in China and India and elsewhere. Honestly, yes, it's, it has to be on our radar when we think 2040, 2030. Uh, fortunately, European Commission is supporting a foresight study to look at 10 years, 20 years from now on rare disease, which is we're privileged to do that in Europe, I think, compared to the rest of the world. China comes into the picture. Now, does it come into the picture in terms of Often drugs development for rare disease, I think there is still a long way. To be honest, what I'm more concerned about in China, it's more about use of new genetic technology in preconception. Yep. And data. This is where I'm concerned. Data, I might be concerned. So this, it's about also gene and cell therapy, which are not following certain scientific standard, ethical standard, and which may undermine the rest, like we've recently had on gene editing. But th that's more the concern I have than to know, should we, do we need to be competitive with China? I'm really worried about the competition with US. I'm worried when I hear Donald Trump saying, okay, the, 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 the benefits are mostly done on the citizen uh, in the US, and the, 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 the profits are marginal in Europe. We need to rebalance that. Yeah. He's not wrong on, on that. For one time, I think he has the fact right. But I'm concerned by what it means. That's what I said. What do we want? Do we want to be second zone or first zone? Okay. And to be first zone, the first thing is to keep a strong alignment with the orphan drug regulation in the US. Be careful before changing the prevalence. Think twice before keeping significant benefit and elements like that. I think that we need to be aligned because that's the research, that's the investment decision. But all the rest after that can be different for me in Europe because it's a different environment where the public actors have a much stronger role in terms of organization and funding of healthcare and medicines. Thank you. I'm going to pass to Ruta and to the rest of the panel to make their, their final messages. I think you know, Jan set out very clearly from the patient's perspective what they expect from the EU institutions in terms of a strategy for the data, you know, an, an update of the regulation in whatever format it comes from, and a serious political commitment. Ruta, what are you looking for? Yeah, so... Just to close, so industry is ready and real-world evidence is really the key next step that we need to move forward. And as you mentioned, needs to be disease-focused uh, and needs to be at not at a national level but at a European level because, again, we need to build that scale, that expertise, that exchange. We also have proven that it's possible because this is happening in some key countries and I will reinforce against Scotland where very recently they have an early access program in place so it's possible. I mentioned trust for rare disease and Alex and you, you mentioned as well so this is really an initiative that enable to reduce those uncertainties in collecting real-world evidence and aligning on the language. So, you know, it's a small step, but it's an important step to enable that. Um, and, you know, to, to talk about disease management. So how do we approach that from, from that angle? So 
it's more kind of putting the puzzles together. And I really like the aspiration that was set, access better than US. We prove already in Europe that um, we can have, you know, higher growth in research. Uh, we drove really high number of clinical trials. These enable in Europe to have early access for patients on around 2 million patients in Europe. So it's possible. Um, and we just need to collaborate and work together, as Martin said. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Till. Well, uh, Jan said a lot, and um, now I have the difficult position here to be invited as being a representative of a member state, and, and but on the other hand, having my own mind and being a medical doctor, and I agree with really the vast majority of what Jan said. I can't say that member states would do the same. So with member states, I see a little bit the problem that we are not um, at the moment at the level of understanding what the power and capacity of ERNs are uh, compared to what are the needs in the own healthcare system. And that is not because member states and politicians are not uh, people which are willing to do something. I think what we also need, and that is something which is, might be missing, to make clear what really valuable tool ERNs are in the national societies. I think we, because uh, there are some countries where you have better understanding of that and others are not. And I mean, politicians can only do things where they finally have the <laughs> hope that uh, the society will acknowledge that this was really a good idea, you did a good job, and so we, we appreciate that. And that is in some parts not the case so far. So we are, uh, Jan said, for instance, financing. I mean, I, I totally agree, and I was one of the persons, because I mean it was anyway fixed in the beginning, that we said not so much money into that system, because we have to see how it works. Now we have a, a vision, a little bit, of what reference networks could be. We have a clear-cut vision when collaboration really started with the CPBS, that this, if it is done properly, is really a, a big tool. Now it would be the time for also the member states and for European money, which is finally member state money, uh, to step in and to support that. And the same is true for registries. Where I see there is also a lack of, and that you mentioned that, um, using IT technologies better. Because, I mean, it is manpower, you're right, but currently doctors have to uh, enter their data for their uh, hospital system, they have to enter data perhaps for their own registry, and they, they have to enter the data there. It's almost never interoperable. So that is something we really have to address. And we have a lot of data in e-health records or something like that, which is, of course, developed in different levels in the member states. So that is something we have to tackle as well. And then to get that together, because if we just uh, rely on uh, getting money to pay people to do that, then we will be too slow to follow what, you, what your vision is. So I think um, what we finally need, and that would be my plea, is um, we have set up now reference networks. It's a very strong focus in the European Commission, but European reference networks will not solve everything. And we have to think beyond reference networks and to motivate countries to come together and to make a strategy. That was what we had in the past with all these commissions we had with the European uh, expert group of, on rare diseases or the user before or something like that. Because we need fora now that member states can catch up to see the perspective of that. And of course the member states have to define the right people to sit there and then to really do that. But this is something which you should keep in mind. Don't only focus on ERNs as the solution and don't overload this only specific thing. We also need a think tank 
on the European level for the member states and other stakeholders to develop that vision, which is now a project, which is good. But if you would have the stakeholders in a more institutionalized form, I think it would be even better. Thank, Thank you. you. Martin, your other panellists have more or less given you a prescription on what to do for the next five years. Uh, you, you can tell us what you think might be likely achievable from what they've been asking. Yes, so first of all, I think uh, the next five years are going to be absolutely crucial. I know we always say this, but this is really the case. Um, why? Because we have to solve, first of all, I think the most uh, big paradox which we have in Europe. On the one hand, we have some of the best well-organized healthcare systems in the world. We are as close to universal access as anyone is likely to be in the foreseeable future. Uh, if you look at the outcomes that we achieve for the money we spend per capita, we have some of the most efficient health systems in the world. On the other hand, it's clear that we are no longer the automatic or even first or even second choice where uh, a lot of product development and innovation happens. So we have to solve this paradox. In, and, and, and as Jan said, you know, we have to make sure we are playing in the, in the top league on all fronts. Now, how do we do that? Well, first of all, we have a fundamental choice to make. You know, we are very proud, rightly so, of our national and regional health systems because they address specificities and they are close to citizens. But these systems have to learn to talk to each other. Because if they don't talk to each other, they become isolated backwaters. Now, even our largest member states are smaller than provinces in China and states in India. This is the reality. Okay? And we have to face reality. Um, I know it runs a bit counter to our history, but we, and I'm not arguing by any stretch of the imagination to change the design of what we have, the contrary, but it does not change the design to have health systems that can talk and exchange data and information where that is necessary, where that is necessary, and where critical mass is an issue. It's a fundamental choice. We can choose not to, not to go down that pathway and resign ourselves to maybe playing in the second or third division, eventually. That, that's a choice we have. It's a political choice more than a technical one. I mean, uh, so that's the, and then the other thing is linked to that is if we, if we are not playing in the top league, products, technologies will be developed in very different settings. I mean, China was mentioned earlier. They will be developed in settings where the ethical and legal principles are very different. I'm not passing judgment here, but they're very different. And then we will have to live with what comes out. Things like gene therapy and so on will be developed in, in cultures, in, 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 in regulatory frameworks that are different. Mm -hmm. And that's a choice. We can either be at the table or on the menu. <laughs> and, and so I think what needs to be uh, decided at the, for the next five years is how, what is the right way to use our critical mass in areas such as rare disease, but also many other aspects where this could make a difference. Okay. Uh, thank you, Martin. And thank you all to our panelists. I apologize we've gone on a little bit past the time, but I think the content was really useful. I know you've got a hand up to speak, but we're already almost 15 minutes past our time. So if any of our panelists... We'll give you a microphone. Yes, what would you like to say? Uh, thank you, Chairman, and uh, all the speakers uh, for very informative presentations. I just uh, I, I come from China, and I would like to make clear one thing about the gene editing, uh, as it was a, um, a very specific case by an individual scientist, and the Chinese government is very uh, strongly against the unethical. Uh, 
work in science and research, and that uh, very serious investigations have been made. So please be clear about this. Thank you. And you're right. The doctor has been sanctioned and is in the process of uh, being investigated. And data is also protected by the Chinese government, and this is being done in the rare disease registries as well. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So now I'm going to close this meeting. It's been a very useful, very lively exchange. We've seen the good and the bad. It's been a bit of a roller coaster ride of what's been achieved. Uh, In terms of the need, which is enormous, it isn't enough, and there's a need to scale up. Um, there There was a useful caution to not go overboard on the ERNs in terms of money, but now the pieces are in place, that we've got proof of concept in some of these areas. We now need to put the political will and the resources behind it to go forward. And member states need to recognize they they can work together without losing their individual flavors. So can we say a warm thank you to our panel members for their words? The, The elements that they have put together are very much aligned with Friends of Europe's own document, um, A Vision for Social Europe, which we will be, of course, using to knock on as many doors as we can over the summer as the, the new players, when they sit in the game of musical chairs, when they're in their seats, we will be putting some of these messages. So thank you very much for attending and we look forward to seeing you at another Friends of Europe event in the coming future. Thank you. Thank you.